Let us rejoice and be glad. <laughs> let's, let's open in prayer. Father God, thank you that you are God and you are good and you are Yahweh, that you are Emmanuel, God with us. And Father, as we turn and we look at this passage, which, Lord, on face value seems dark and depressing, Lord, I, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, that your word, as you have promised, would not return to you void. Open our hearts and our minds and our lives and our ears. Speak through me, I pray. Amen. This morning we, we are starting a, a four-part, I think it's a four-part series, through the book of Joel. Um, as Reg said, if you haven't found it yet, it's, it's just after Hosea. It's one of the, the minor prophets of Joel, which basically means he's one of the shorter books in the Old Testament. So, um, you'll see in my, uh, my notes in the bulletin, I suggest that you spend some time and, and read through the whole book. It's only three chapters long. It's really short. Um, it's an interesting book. Um, it's one of those books that is quoted no end in, in the New Testament. You might remember at Pentecost, the next week's passage, uh, Peter actually quotes Joel uh, about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And a few other times it's quoted as well. But, but, but it's one of those books which maybe we don't read as often as we should read because it, I mean, it, it is all about people facing times of trouble and despair and, and darkness. But if there's one phrase that that really summarizes everything that, that the book of Joel is about. It's the day of the Lord. You'll see that, that, that in every single chapter, the day of the Lord stands at the center of what Joel is trying to say. And, and for me and, and for you, I hope, as Christians, that the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus comes back, has, has got positive images. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take us to be with him for all eternity. But as we read the book of Joel, and, and especially today, I think what Joel wants us to understand is that the day of the Lord has, has got another side to it. Joel writes to us and he says that, that then when the Holy God who made all things comes, it, it'll be a day of destruction and desolation like this universe of ours has never seen before. One of the, the really interesting things when we come to the book of Joel is, is that we don't actually know very much about who Joel is or, or even exactly when he was writing. Um, We've we got some hints. We know that Joel came from a, a strong family of believers in God. Um, his name, Joel, means Yahweh is God. Uh, his, his father's name, uh, let me pronounce it right, Pethuel means God, the, 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 the straightforwardness of God. And that, that word El at the end of their names is, is a generic word for God um, in, in Semitic languages. So, so we know here that, that Joel comes from a family of, of believers and, and really his name and his dad's name sums up really the whole message of Joel. Because it's it's the message that God is God who deals with us in a straightforward way. 
God deals straightforwardly in a no-nonsense manner with us. Um, as to when exactly he wrote, nobody really knows. Uh, I've read people who say he wrote in 800 BC and I've read other people who say no, he wrote in, in 300 BC. As suffice for us, it was a long time ago. But I think there's actually a good reason why, why in verse 1 we're not told when Joel was writing this book. And I think that's because what Joel has to say, although he said it to a specific time, what he has to say is as relevant today as it was maybe at 800 BC and as relevant today as it was in 300 BC. Because what we've got here is not the word of Joel, but but look at verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. And doesn't the Bible teach us that that God's word is, is true yesterday, today and tomorrow because God is God. In other words, this book is, is one that we need to read today in our own experiences. But, but even if we don't know exactly when Joel was writing, we, we do know that, that he's writing at a time when the land of Judah, the, the people of God, are facing the most terrible, horrible circumstances. Uh, verse 2 says to us, the circumstances like, like nobody in living memory, nobody even in memory gone past uh, can remember. And Joel is, is living through this and, and he looks at the situation that, that he finds himself in uh, and he is a great preacher because he looks beyond the circumstances on the surface and, uh, and he sees in this plague that the land is facing uh, a teaching opportunity. Joel, Joel realizes that, that when we experience something for ourselves, we, we can really easily attach meaning to that and, and learn something from our experiences. And he wants us to, to understand, as he was writing especially to the people back then, he wanted them to understand that when trouble comes, the only thing to do is to cry out to God children's story, the the animals praying to God. That's actually verse 20. Even the animals pant for you. A bit of trivia for you, the the word pant there. The only other time it's used in the Old Testament uh, is in Psalm 42 as the deer pants for the water. And just as an aside, I just love it here when the streams are dried up. No water to pant for, you pant for God. Anyway, that's an aside. Joel comes and he says to the people, there's, there's something to be learnt from what you're experiencing. And so much so, verse 3, that, that, that what you're experiencing, you need to take it and you need to pass it on to the next generation. And they need to keep passing it on generation to generation. Not so much because it's a, a good story, like, like your story about eating the grass. is great story. But, but Joel wants, wants the people to pass on the story of of their locust plagues so that future generations could learn the same lesson. That when trouble comes, you cry to God. A few weeks ago, I was watching Landline. Great program to watch when you get home from church. Um, and they were talking about this, this season 
in Eastern Australia is apparently slated to be one of the worst locust seasons on record. I mean, the Eastern Seaboard's been in drought for a few years and I think two years now the, the drought has broken and, and there's, I mean, it's wonderful when the drought breaks, you get great crops, but the side effect is that you get great clouds of locusts as well. And I remember one shot in particular, they, they dug a spade into, into a paddock, random spot, they turned over and, and in the clod you could just see like a mass of locust eggs ready to hatch and, and come out and, and they reckon it's going to decimate the crops on the eastern seaboard. I mean, today we've, we've got pesticides and, and government programs to deal with, with locusts, but, but in Joel's day, all that time back, when the locusts came, there was nothing that they could do to stop it. The, the land was just desolated. I mean, can you not hear the, the growing sense of, of despair in verse 4? Um, what the locust swarm has left. Yes, they've left something. The great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left. Yes, there's still something left. No, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left. Oh, please, let there be something left. No, other locusts have eaten. And it sounds to me like they weren't just facing one season of locusts. They were getting plague after plague after plague after plague. Now you remember back in Exodus, um, God sent a plague of locusts against the Egyptians. That was one season. Can you imagine four seasons of plague locusts? In fact, at chapter 2 verse 25, God says, uh, he speaks about the locusts and, and about the years that they've eaten. And quite literally, it would take years for the land to get back into any sort of useful state. Now, apart from Reg and maybe a few others, I suspect most of you are sitting there going, oh, that's nice. I don't really care about locusts, Nick. Um, if you're like me, you're a dyed-in-the-wool city slicker. And, and this talk of locusts is just a so what. Who cares? But really, for the people that Joel was speaking to, it, it was we care a lot. And that was an agrarian society. If, if the crops failed, then, then that was it. Maybe you could go to a foreign country and, and buy some food off them. Remember, um, there was a drought, I think, in, in Joseph's day and, and his family went to Egypt to buy food from unbeknownst to them, their brother, and, and that was what you did. You went to buy food from a foreign country. But, but imagine having to buy food for survival four years running. You'd be broke. I guess for us today, it's, it'd be like us not having a double depression, but having a quadruple depression going into depression. You'd get a job, you'd lose it straight away. You'd get a job, you'd lose it straight away. I mean, you'd be broken, wouldn't you? And the picture that Joel paints for us in, in chapter, five to 20, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 20, is it's about as bleak as you can get. Everything, he says, in the land of Judah is affected by this, this series of plagues. You've got society affected. You've got creation affected. You've got 
even the worship of God affect it? And look at, at verse 10. He says, The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. I mean, these, these are the three staples of life. Grain, oil, wine. And when them, with them gone, I mean, your, your nation's almost in starvation mode. And to make matters worse, the, the, the same three things, um, oil, grain and wine, are usually mentioned together in the Old Testament as as, as gifts from God, as, as blessings from God. Uh, turn with me, if you've got to your Bibles, to, to Psalm 104. Um, God speaking about his, his greatness and his, his, his grace towards us. Verse 14, he says, um, He makes grass grow for the cattle, plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. He brings forth wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread that sustains his heart, God is doing these great and wonderful things for His people and yet Joel comes and the oil is gone and the wine is gone and the grain is gone and I'm sure I'm sure some of the people would have been thinking to themselves if these things are gifts from God if this is a sign that that God loves us and blesses us what does it mean for them to be gone? And I think that some people would would have maybe thought that, that, well, is God really for us anymore? Are we still His people? And it's not surprising, verse 12, that, that, that gladness, joy withers away from the people. And I love that word, withered away. You know, just slowly dries out. Interesting here, Joel says, you couldn't even drink your way happy. (laughs) Drunk? (laughs) You think you might sort of slug your way through to a bit of laughter? Not going to happen. There's no wine. There's not even new wine. Uh, New wine is is wine that's left to ferment only five to nine days and and Joel is not commenting on whether it's good to get drunk or not. He's just saying there is nothing you can do to experience anything even coming close to gladness in your heart. Gladness is withered away. But the worst thing, says Joel in, in verse 8, is, is that the nation's worship of God has been interrupted. And he uses one of the most horrible griefs that he can think of and he says... It, it's, it's like a, a, a girl who is engaged to be married and her, her fiancé dies. And he holds this picture of, of this grieving child up to the nation and he says, people, this is how we should be mourning because this is the same sort of, of trouble that we're in because verse 9, the grain offerings and the drink offerings have been cut off from the house of the Lord. I mean, these are the offerings that uh, Leviticus 2, some other places. These are the offerings that are to be made twice a day to, to the Lord in the temple. And, and if there's no grain and if there's no wine or oil, how do you make an offering to the Lord? And I suspect that what little the people did have, rather than offering it to God, they ate it.
You know, if we stand back and, and stand in Joel's shoes back then, I mean, it's a small thing for us. Yeah, we, we don't offer grain to God, but those offerings back then weren't so much a take it or leave it kind of thing. It wasn't an optional extra. By, by offering grain and, and drink offerings to God, you, you were saying, God, we, we are your people. We recommit ourselves to you. Would you bless us as we honor your name? And to hold back and to not offer, because you're holding it for yourself because you don't have, but, but to not offer those grain offerings and those drink offerings was, well, was like kind of saying, God, you're an all right kind of person, but I come first. Me first, God. If I've got leftover, I'll give to you. This is a horrible picture that Joel paints of society. And I suppose that maybe there are Christians in places like Pakistan where the floods have come that they would read Joel and and say, oh, we get it. We feel the same despair. Our churches have been washed away. Our livelihoods are gone. We've got nothing. And we can relate to what Joel is saying. What about us? I said Joel's message is timeless and it's for today, but what is he saying to us here in Australia where we've got everything that we need? Can I suggest that, that it might be true that just like the people in Joel's day, even though we have all we need physically, we too can face times which are dark and full of despair uh, can I call it depression? Uh, and not, not talking depression, depression, but, but, but at times of, of spiritual slackness or depression. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm talking about a feeling like, like God is far. A feeling like, like to pray is meaningless, like you're talking to the ceiling. A, 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 a seeming that, that you come to worship a church and it's just so much hooey. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, oh, what is this heretic saying now? Can't say that, Nick. How dare a Christian think that God might be far? And He's not far, I know that. He's, he's as close to us as, or He's in us, He's, he's underneath our skin. And, and He wasn't far even in Joel's day. Remember the beginning, verse 1, the word of the Lord coming into this horrible situation where the people felt God was far away, the word of the Lord came. But isn't it true that it can sometimes feel like God is far away? I mean, there could be a hundred reasons. Maybe the Pakistan floods, if you're a Christian there, you'd say, why has God done this to us? I mean, it could be the experience of losing a loved one. God, where are you? Why didn't you stop this? It, it, I mean, you can think of other examples for yourself, but, but Joel comes to us at times like that in chapter 1 and he uses our experience of, of that and, and he uses the people's experience back then and 
and he uses it to turn our attention, verse 15, onto the day of the Lord. Now, I think Joel would fail counselling 101 if he studied today because he doesn't go to those who are in distress and say, there, there, it's all right, you're going to be okay. Joel turns around, verse 15, he says, alas, the day of the Lord is coming and it's going to be so much worse. He dares to suggest that, that their negative experiences are just like precursor tremors to the great shaking of the earth that is coming when Jesus returns. And yes, it doesn't make sense counselling-wise, but, but if there's one thing I've learned about God is that he doesn't fit into the little boxes that we would put him into. Now, why does God, through Joel, go there? When, when times are tough, why does God say, Watch out, times are going to get tougher. I think the reason, verse 14, the the reason God goes there is because he wants to teach us that when life gets desperate, we need to cry out to him. To cry out to him when he seems like he's far away because he's not. To, To cry out to God when it seems like he doesn't care. No grain, no wine, no oil. Cry out to him because he does care. We'll see that in in coming weeks. Cry out to him because he is our only hope of deliverance now and on the great day of the Lord. Last week, we looked at at Paul um, in Acts chapter 16 and and if you remember he he was thrown in jail he was beaten up to a a bloody pulp thrown in jail and you remember what, what he did he sang and he prayed to God he cried out to God because he realized that when times get tough God is our only hope I honestly don't know where you're at or whether you know people at different places. Maybe maybe you're all feeling like the people in chapter 1 of Joel. Maybe you felt like that in the past. Maybe you, you will feel like that in the future. How are you going to react? Joel's message is quite clear. He says, cry out to God. Because we know that that our God to whom we cry knows what it's like to to face desperation. He's the one who who hung on the cross and and faced the desolation of the Father turning his face away from him. He's the one who poured out his, his blood and his life as a permanent offering and sacrifice for us. A once and forever grain offering, a once and forever drink offering, a a statement stamped in ink saying you are my people and I am your God. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow because he lives. There need be no fear because we know that he holds the future and life is worth the living just because
closing. So let, let's stand and, and let's sing that together.